One of the most expensive trials in New Zealand's recent criminal court history has ended with 37-year-old David Bain walking free. The court saga began in 1994 with a phone call to the emergency services and ended Friday afternoon in the High Court in Christchurch. Taking into account the length of time, the number of people involved and the cost to the taxpayer, this was a legal battle like no other. Monique Devereux, who's been covering the three-month retrial, reports. This can help you. No, they're all dead. What's the matter? They're all dead. Oh, I came home and they're all dead. Whereabouts are you? Um, um, every street. Every street. 65 Every Street. They're all dead. Who's all dead? My, my family, they're all dead. Hurry up. It's okay. Every Street. What number are you calling from? 454-2527. And your last name? Bain. Bain. With that call, one cold, dark Dunedin morning, the path to prison for David Bain was set. But Friday, he was acquitted of the murders of his five family members, his parents Robin and Margaret, sisters Laniette and Aroa, and brother Stephen. Madam Fourperson, please stand. Members of the jury, have you unanimously agreed upon your verdicts? We have. On the first count of the murder of Robin Irving Bain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. On the second count of the murder of Margaret Arrowa Cullenbain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> On the third count of the murder of Stephen Robin Cullenbain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Yeah! On the fourth count of the murder of Laniette Margaret Cullenbain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. On the fifth count of the murder of Arawa Mary Cullenbain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Yes. Are you all agreeing of the jury? Yes. The jury that made that decision was impanelled on March the 6th, a process that took several days and started with a pool of 300 people, which was whittled down to the 80 who crowded into court, waiting to hear whether their name would be called. The actual impanelling took just 40 minutes. Members of the jury, welcome to number one courtroom. The seven-woman, five-man jury was a fair cross-section of the community, their ages ranging from the mid-twenties to sixties, their occupations including a teacher, a flight attendant, a student and a mother. There is no doubt they had a difficult task in making their decision to allow David Bain to walk free from the High Court in Christchurch, and the fact they had to make that decision at all has been long debated. With David Bain having his convictions quashed by the Privy Council, was this a cost the taxpayer should have had to bear? Especially as it's not the end of the legal action. The defence will now look for compensation for David Bain's years spent in prison and the effect that had on his life. The taxpayer will also fund that inquiry. The Legal Services Agency, which manages legal aid, says although not every invoice has yet been submitted, at the end of the trial it had already paid $2.7 million in legal aid over the course of Mr Bain's legal battle. That's $2,056,000 for the retrial process, on top of the $706,000 it had already paid out up until the retrial was announced. 
Compare that to the 14-week Scott Watson case, which previously topped the legal aid list at a cost of $623,000. There's a long list of what legal aid can cover, ranging from accommodation and airfares to expert witnesses' expenses, office costs and legal services. But it does not include the personal expenses of the defendant, such as travel and accommodation. We cannot reveal exactly where the Bain defence team lived for the four months its members spent in Christchurch before and during the trial, but the apartment complex usually costs $140 a night per room. $140 per night, about 120 nights for the legal team of Joe Carum, Michael Reed, Helen Cull, Paul Morton and Matthew Carum, total $84,000. There is also the miscellaneous area of legal aid costs, some of which, according to the defence team, covered its coffee bill. The coffee shop across the road from court has been a regular haunt for the lawyers at each break in court proceedings. Most often it was Joe Carum who acted as the runner, returning to the courtroom with a large tray of takeaways. Calculating roughly 10 coffees a day at $4 a pop over the 57 trial days for the defence team and David Bain's standard order soy latte, that's a bill of over $2,000, some paid for by the public purse. Of course, a huge percentage of the cost in the legal process is in the presentation of the Crown's case. Some of that cannot be broken down into dollar terms. Under the umbrella of the Ministry of Justice, the courts have the responsibility to find and move necessary witnesses, provide video links and pay for the cost of testing and moving exhibits. But justice is not cheap and these functions are all part of the normal duty of the court. For that reason, the Ministry of Justice says it cannot provide a detailed rundown of exactly what this amounted to in the Bain trial, but it can provide the overall cost total, $1.1 million. The police force can provide its own figures. Detective Inspector Ross Pinkham was in charge of what was dubbed Operation Huia, which got underway in 2007, immediately after the Privy Council decision quashing David Bain's convictions was handed down. The 10th of May was when the Privy Council decision came out and as a result of that we had a meeting uh, that was on the Thursday New Zealand time. We had a meeting on the Friday to work out our plan and what we would do. We did a presentation to the staff in Dunedin on the Monday and as a result we were requested by the Solicitor General to provide him with some advice as to where we would go with the investigation and whether uh, the police could provide the Crown with um, evidence that could be put before the court. And really it was the Solicitor General's responsibility not to say whether a trial should go ahead, but whether a trial should not go ahead. From there, the police tallied up their witnesses and their exhibits, the officers drawn from right across the country and travelling to Dunedin to take part in the reinvestigation. On February the 8th this year, the staff relocated to Christchurch to prepare for the retrial. At its peak, Operation Huia had 26 police staff working at the same time, although the workload varied over the weeks. Salaries aside, the costs all add up. True, until the beginning of the trial, we'd probably spent uh, around about a quarter of a million dollars, 250000 and that was spread over the three financial years that we've got. And there's been ongoing costs of getting police witnesses to the court to give evidence. The court had ordered a change of venue for the trial 
uh, we the majority, about 80% of the witnesses were from the Otago area, mainly from Dunedin, and there was a requirement to get them to come to Christchurch. And so that was an additional cost to us of getting them here. And we budgeted around the, the 33 witnesses, police witnesses that we had, along with the staff that were required to put the trial together in Christchurch. There was probably a cost of $100,000 of getting those people to here for the 12-week trial. To date, um, before the trial's finished, sort of uh, mid-May, we, we have spent $375,000. Lawyers the length of the country have been watching this trial closely. Many in Christchurch have found time to be in High Court 1 to watch proceedings. Uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, the evidence in this trial. At times it seemed like the defence lawyers and the judge were each at the end of their tethers, their tense exchanges often playing out in front of a bewildered jury. It's not a matter of fact, that's an argument. Well, it's a matter of fact, sir. No one was looking for a, an intermediate object. You've, you've said your piece. Just please Thank you, sir. Well, I'm great, great how can that be fair, Mr Reid? Can no, I answer my credibility? Question. How can your questions be fair? Also, if you were prepared to let me go on with the next two or three you questions... You won't answer my question, will you? You will not justify the question that you're putting. Uh, I give up. You make the ruling, I'll abide by it, sir. So is Mr Raftree giving evidence now, sir? No, he's not, Mr. Reid. What he's saying. Can we see red on there anywhere? No, we can't. We can't see anything red. No. Well, are you are you colourblind? Are you a, are you a constable in the police office, police service? Yes, I am. Yeah, stationed in Timaru. I am. All right. Why don't you stick to your job? Highly experienced defence lawyer Warren Scotter is a partner in the Hamilton law firm Harkness Henry and the current chair of the New Zealand Law Society's Standards Committee for the Waikato Bay of Plenty. He says the clashes between the defence lawyers and the judge are so extraordinary they have been subject to wide debate at legal office water coolers over the past three months. Michael Reed's conduct in court, uh, his arrogance, his rudeness to professional witnesses and particularly perhaps to Justice Pankhurst himself has had lawyers up and down the country wondering every day just what he's up to. The exchanges we've seen in many news items make the uh, stuff we see with Alan Shaw and the judges on Boston Legal really look like stuff from Enid Blyton by comparison. I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, and it has to have been a deliberate tactic. Uh, by the time this program goes to air, uh, we'll know if it worked. But Warren Scotter says taking that risk with a jury is highly unusual. It might be an outrageous thing to do and something I don't say lightly, but I think most lawyers wonder if in fact his tactic is not to bait Justice Pankhurst into losing his temper and most judges I think would have by now, uh, and then using that either as an argument on appeal or as a means of having the jury believe that David wasn't getting a fair trial this time because the judge was obviously so antagonistic to defence counsel. I don't know, but there has to be a reason. The lengthy saga of David Bain's retrial has not only stirred interest within the workings of New Zealand's justice system. Media coverage, starting right back at Mr Bain's bail hearing in 2007, reached unprecedented levels. 
Leaving the court free from prison for the first time in more than 12 years, David Bain faced a media scrum of about 100 journalists, photographers and camera people. How does it feel? It's pretty, pretty damn good. <laughs> Were you expecting it's this damn, today? No, I was uh, preparing myself for the worst. But and did it feel like a long time waiting in the court? It's been... Uh, it was an exceptionally long time, sorry, yes. What are you going to do first, David? What are you going to do first? I'm going to follow Joe home. <laughs> do you want a new trial? I don't care one way or the other. I'll leave that up to the system to make their decision. Ursula Chair is Canterbury University's media law expert. She says that media coverage and in the subsequent retrial was extraordinary. In my experience, the media interest in this is enormous and and the most I've seen. I think the logistics of it alone, the number of times the judge has had to deal with applications for filming, still photography, uh, sound recording, uh, and work out how many cameras to be allowed in the court. And so the media have had to cooperate as well and make arrangements about sharing material. And, of course, the courtroom itself has been so full that they're now using CCTV footage to allow other people who can't fit in the court to see what's going on as well. So I can't recall that in in my living memory anyway. There were new media aspects for Justice Pankhurst to grapple with in this retrial in relation to the internet. TV3 applied for the right to stream its coverage live on its website. It was a request that was initially ignored when the network did not speak to it at a pre-trial hearing. But without a ruling not to do it, TV3 went ahead. The broadcaster was pulled up short a week later when the Crown and Defence lawyers complained. But before that, the courts also had to consider the requests from newspapers, which applied to broadcast video news on their websites. The medium is relatively new, although various major newspapers now employ specific video journalists to record and edit news stories. All right, so uh, we've got a new lead for the a new Bain lead. So if we can pop that up the top and maybe move latest updates down to number two. In the days before the trial, the newspapers were denied the right to broadcast video. But after a hastily organised conference call with media lawyers and Justice Pankhurst, that decision was reversed. Jeremy Rees, the publisher of the New Zealand Herald's website, was one of those involved. I don't think we'd put to him quite clearly enough what we wanted to do. I don't think he had perhaps grasped that the media websites all wanted to use video or audio straight away on their websites, and I'm not sure he'd thought through all the digital publishing side of things. So when, when we spoke to him, we had to make it quite clear that's what we were trying to do. Canterbury University's Ursula Chair agrees these instances are just some of the changes that have taken place in the way the media covers a trial. I think for a long time, for example, it wasn't realised that media would sit in court and put stuff on their cell phones and text it, and it could be downloaded at the other end and reported immediately in the newsroom. That wasn't realised for quite a while. So it's just a case of the media sharing their experience of what's happening to them with technology with the judges and explaining that very clearly and then saying, can we do this, please, in relation to this trial? And then the judge has to make some sort of judgment about, well, what's the impact of that technology on this trial? Clearly, with the Bain case, um, Justice Pankhurst was worried about the impact on the witnesses. He emphasised that a number of times. That has been his main concern in relation to internet coverage. How successful you know, he has been in, in controlling that is almost impossible to know. 
all I can say is that I see the judges doing their best in trying to take a practical approach, meet the needs of the media and the needs of the public to know what's going on at the same time as ensuring that there is a fair trial and that things are done properly on that side. One person who was no stranger to the media during the saga was the man who has long been described as David Bain's keenest supporter. Joe Carum, former All Black, former rugby league player, made public his support for the imprisoned Mr Bain in a book published in 1997, and his name will now be forever linked to his friends. In the three-month trial, it was a strange scenario to watch. Whenever the Defence Council took instructions throughout the legal proceedings, it was Joe Carum they spoke to, never the man facing the actual murder charges. Mr Carum's expenses were also, unusually, covered by legal aid, although he was not paid a salary as the lawyers were. For him, Friday was one of the greatest days in his life. What has really mattered is that the truth, as I said 13 years ago, has finally fallen where it has always been. It has only been a very, very... Uh, unfortunate attitude by various authorities and now is not the time to bring them up that has caused this thing to last until 2009 and put this good man here through what he's been through. There is no doubt that without Joe Carum and the first $12,000 he personally put towards this fight in 1996, David Bain would never have got this far. Shots ring out in a barroom night Into Betty Valentine from the upper hall Joe Carum's campaign was colourful and involved luring high-profile support. Ruben Hurricane Carter's story was immortalised by Bob Dylan and numerous movies. In the late 1960s, he was wrongly targeted and convicted of three murders he did not commit and spent 20 years in prison until being freed through a federal court appeal. Reuben Carter visited David Bain in prison in September 2001, then spoke about it with News Talk ZB's Paul Holmes. My feeling about David uh, upon our second visit was simply reinforced that this person is, is a nice person. It's difficult to believe that he that he could have done such a thing like that. I mean, even to someone that he disliked, and particularly to those that he loved, is difficult. So are we, are we uh, very early on uh, come to realize those people that should be in prison, those people that should not be in prison? Because uh, maintaining that you're innocent in prison does not help you at all. Uh, maintaining that you're innocent in prison means that you can't uh, uh, you can't have the same privileges that other prisoners have who, who admit that they're, that they're guilty. Uh, maintaining your innocence in prison means that you, uh, uh, you're not likely to get parole because the parole board feels as though that you're not remorseful, that you haven't come to terms with the crime that you did not commit because you won't say that you're guilty. So all of this uh, in prison is, is bad for anyone who, who professed to be innocent while they're in prison. Guilt is what everybody wants to hear about. There is no profit in maintaining that you're innocent in prison, none whatsoever. But you must do it. If you are indeed innocent, you must do that. And I tell David Bain, 
You must do that. You must not give up on yourself. Hurricane Carter was not the only high-profile supporter to become part of the Bain entourage. The day the retrial started, Arthur Allen Thomas was in High Court 1. Like Hurricane Carter, Mr Thomas had his own lengthy battle with the justice system before being finally pardoned and compensated for the wrongful murder convictions that saw him jailed in the 1970s. He would only give interviews about his support of David Bain if he received some payment. One television news show agreed on a muffin and a cup of coffee, but its competition refused. The link to the David Bain case will probably never be over for Joe Carum. He sat through all but two of the 57 days of the retrial. He missed one through illness and the other because a family member was sick. He says every minute was worth it and that his life will never be the same. David Bain is to be presumed innocent. There is another man whose life was forever altered when that 111 call came through to emergency services on June the 20th, 1994. Shooting a video clip at every street on, on the morning of the 20th of June, uh, under whose instructions was this video taken? That was uh, under the direction of Detective Sergeant Weir. Fifteen years ago, Milton Weir was third in charge of the Bain case investigation. He's now a property manager in Dunedin, having perfed out of the police under a cloud of suspicion and distrust. Milton Weir is as much a part of the David Bain saga as Joe Carum. It was he who painted the words Hang Bain on a wall in his house during a party, a slogan seen by neighbours and revealed by the defence during the retrial. But more pertinent to the David Bain saga was Mr Weir's involvement at the crime scene. It was he who found, in Stephen Bain's room, the spectacle lens from the glasses the Crown says David Bain was wearing, a crucial part of the prosecution's evidence that it said incriminated the killer. But giving his evidence in the first trial, the detective held up a photo of the bedroom and inexplicably pointed to the lens being in a different place. Legal debate that insisted that error was partly the reason for the first jury's guilty verdict spawned the next 14 years of legal argument, leading all the way to the Privy Council in London and back to High Court 1 in Christchurch this year. And it was here Milton Weir, often with gritted teeth, had to relive the series of events that left his career in tatters amid defence claims he had planted that lens. Mr Weir, that gap there is precisely where you would put a hand in if you were going to put the lens in there. Because that precisely is in line with where you say you found the real lens. Right there. It is close, I accept that, yeah. yes. It's not only close, Mr Weir, it's right alongside where the real lens was found. And I put it to you, Mr Weir, that you put your hand in there and put that lens in there. And I categorically deny that. Milton Weir had no choice in giving evidence at this year's retrial and publicly reliving that part of his life. What he did not expect was to be vindicated by new evidence that not even the prosecutors saw coming when this retrial began. In the second week, police forensic photographer Simon Schollam was asked to examine the new defence booklet that contained photos of the scene at Every Street, and he did not complete that job until the eighth week of the trial. He gave his startling evidence on day 39, and the new theory, unpopular with the defence, was queried by Michael Reed QC. The photographs you've asked me to consider, yes. I know where this object is in this scene. All right, well tell me where it is. It's at the toe of the skate. All right, so it's somehow moved from the toe of the skate. When did that move? 
that movement occurred in the removal of Stephen's body. That area was swept forward by one of the people handling the body. So there has been some movement in that scene before Mr. Weir found or says he found the lens. Now, you definitely don't understand my answer. I do need to to say, however, that my answers, if you pursue this, do not go in favour of your client. This is where Mr. Weir says he actually found the lens. I believe it was found there, yes. But in the course of examining Book I, which you put forward in this case, and which Crown gave me to analyse, I did a comparison of this area against the original scene with the body still present. You can clearly see the lens shape here. And you you can clearly see from the found lens it's it's concave side up, meaning it's on its smoothest and smallest part to be vulnerable to movement. Right. But nevertheless, what the police put to the Court of Appeal and what the police have said in this case is that that was a specular effect. Well, no matter how often repeated it. If it's not the truth, it's not the truth. What this last-minute police witness essentially told the jury was that Mr Weir was right all along. The lens he had pointed out to the first jury in the photo was the lens. It was later moved as the body of Stephen Bain was removed from that scene, meaning it was found exactly where Mr Weir said he found it. Milton Weir has never spoken publicly about the effect this case has had on his life, but considered breaking that silence to take part in this programme. He changed his mind, however, getting his wife Nicola to explain the timing wasn't right after all. David Bain's retrial was one of the longer jury trials New Zealand has had, but not the longest. That honour goes to the 2002 burglary trial in Auckland, which took six months and involves seven defendants facing 261 charges. Helen Bain, do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. 58 days after its job began, the Bain trial jury did form its opinion its verdict coming after five hours and 50 minutes and resulting in Justice Pankhurst releasing Mr Bain from the constraints of the court. You may leave the dock, Mr Bain. One of the next steps for the Bain team will be to consider compensation. Arthur Allen Thomas won $1 million after his wrongful convictions and nine years in jail. David Doherty was given $868,000 after a wrongful rape conviction. But there is no certainty in that process. Last year, fisherman Rex Haig was denied compensation after a report was completed by Robert Fisher QC. Mr Fisher found that it was more probable than not that Mr Haig participated in a murder for which he spent 10 years in jail before the Court of Appeal quashed his conviction. Warren Scotter explains the compensation process. It's not part of the court system. David would apply to the government for compensation and the Attorney-General, I think it is, would appoint a senior lawyer, probably a Queen's Counsel. That person would then be seized of all the material and that person's report to the government as to whether compensation should be given or not will be far more insightful as to the truth of this whole matter than any jury's verdict. That's because, of course, that lawyer will have available to him all the material that for technical or other reasons has been excluded and which hasn't been before the jury. And there's also, and this is really important, a quite different threshold, a quite different test, because the test at that stage will be, has David proved on the balance of probabilities that he was innocent? So even if he's found not guilty 
by the jury. The independent QC can certainly find that when the onus is back on David to prove his innocence, even to the lower standard, that he's failed to do that. But for the moment, David Bain is, as his lead counsel told the jury, a penniless man. He and his core group of supporters were still in Christchurch over the weekend, but are now finally about to make plans as to where this 15-year journey will take them next. That insight was written and presented by Monique Devereaux. It was produced by Sue Ingram.